Well, it's finally here. Uh, being in leadership, we get kind of a view of what's coming, and I can tell you we're excited to dig into Corinthians. Um, it's just the, the state of the world right now, uh, we just felt like this was a really perfect sermon series to, to get us started. So it's my, uh, my privilege to pray over Scott as he leads us in 1 Corinthians. Father, we are, we are truly thankful to have Scott Meyer um, as your mouthpiece. And Father, we are, uh, we are asking your spirit to be in Scott. Father, we're asking uh, for your words to flow through Scott. Father, we're asking that the, uh, the body here will uh, have open hearts, that we will hear your message through Scott, that your kingdom will be furthered, that we will be on mission. And Father, we are just uh, so thankful that we are able to, to be here this morning. And Father, we just ask uh, your blessing on this series. We ask your guidance, and Father, we just ask for your courage as we uh, go into the world. Father, we know that, uh, that hell is real. We know that the tomb is empty. We are truly thankful for the empty tomb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know about a perfect sermon series. That's a pretty tall order. Um, but I, am, I share the enthusiasm of the elders and the, the leadership I do think that what we're going to cover uh, in this document that we have, this letter that we have, and that's what Corinthians is, it's a letter that was written to a church many years ago, but I think you're going to discover that it's incredibly relevant. So I'm going to reiterate what Sila did at the beginning. We've got these scripture journals uh, available. They're out there in our our four-year area. If you haven't had a chance to grab one, I'm really going to encourage you to grab one. If you can make a small donation, that's great, but do not let the money get in the way. Uh, we would love for one of these to be in everybody's hands as we go through this, through this series, and explore God's Word together. I'm going to start this way. Uh, I was in my last few years in college before I lost... Um, anybody that was close to me personally uh, through death. I was very blessed that way. And the first one that I lost was my grandmother. And she lived in Lexington, Kentucky. And I had an opportunity, when I got the call, Dad told me that this is his, his mother that had passed away. Dad gives me the information. And I go through one of those real run around the house, make the arrangements, try to make the, the travel plans, and to make it in time for the funeral, because I was going to serve as a portion of the funeral. It's going to be one of the first funerals that I had actually officiated. And so, uh, contacted the airlines. This is back pre-9-11, so it was a whole lot easier to, to book a flight. Got on to the plane in D Dallas Fort Worth, and it's a direct flight from Dallas Fort Worth to well, actually, if it's we are on Delta, so if you go anywhere on Delta, you're going to see um, you're going to see Atlanta at some point. So, so we're going to Atlanta, but I don't even get off the plane. I head to Lexington, to Lexington, Kentucky. We're almost to Lexington, Kentucky, and what you need to know about 
about this is that at the same time, there was a certain football team that had earned the right to be in the Super Bowl. This is going to show you how old the story is. This was the Dallas Cowboys. Um, the Dallas and the Super Bowl was being played in Atlanta that day. So I'd spent part of this flight with all these Dallas Cowboy fans. And we're, we're coming in for, or we're not coming in for a landing, but we're in mid-flight. And the pilot comes over the PA system. And you usually expect these kind of pilot announcements. We're, we're traveling at this altitude, this fast, it's good weather. Those are the ones you want. He breaks in and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make. He says, I cannot get the flaps down. Now, I had not heard this particular announcement before when I flew. And at the time, I was trying to figure out what the flaps were for, but if they were supposed to be down, I really, really wanted them down. Any airplane I'm in, I want the flaps where the pilot wants the flaps. And he says, says I've got the situation under control, but we're going to need a longer runway to land than what was available. And this, at this point, we were still headed towards Atlanta. And I started thinking to myself, if Atlanta International Airport does not have a long enough runway, how long of a runway are we going to need? And I was willing to suggest I-20 at the time. Cover several states, take as much of it as you need. He says, we're flying to Orlando and I'm going to land there. My only thought was, in case of a water landing, my seat makes a flotation device. So... We're a little anxious inside the plane now. And so he comes back on as we're approaching Orlando Airport. And we're coming in. And I'm used to circling the airport a couple of times. Apparently what I didn't know is he'd been given all the clearance that he needed. And we got to come straight into the airport. And then I'm looking out the side window. And usually you cover at least a little bit of pavement before he touches down. The second our wheels were over the pavement. He puts the plane on the ground and tells us he's going to have to come in a little fast. So far, we've got a little problem, and we've got to go a little fast on the landing. He comes in, and he's going is apparently fast, and it felt fast going in. And he, as soon as we're on the ground, he reverses the engines. He's trying to bring us to a stop. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I was worried for nothing. And I look out my window, and outside my window is the entire airport rescue response crew. And we go whizzing past them. This is like a movie. We go flying past them. They've got their lights on, and multiple vehicles with their lights on come following us and chase us down the runway. And he finally brings the plane to the stop, and he comes back on and says, I've stressed the brakes a little bit. We're going to wait right here. And they started circling, all these rescue crews, circling the, the plane. What I come to find out is they wanted to see if we'd set the brakes on fire. Finally, we get up to the airport. And when we got to a stop, we broke out in applause for that pilot. It was before Captain Sully landed in the uh, Hudson River. But he was our Captain Sully at that moment. Now, I tell the story. 
Because if you had looked on the outside of that plane and you had watched us fly over, whether it had been in Atlanta or, or in Orlando, wherever, if you'd seen us fly over, you would have thought, there's nothing wrong with that. From the outside, everything looked perfect. The weather was great. Our altitude was great. The speed was great. Everything was fine, but on the inside, we knew we had a problem. And we were praying. I'm going to suggest that that's where we are with this thing called church now. And especially as we've come through this thing with the COVID, followed by the, the winter storm Uri, on the heels of an election, we, we may look okay on the outside, but on the inside, we know we've got some problems. And we're anxious, aren't we? And we're worried. And perhaps we feel like it's all going so fast and we don't know how to slow it down. So what I'm praying for and what the elders are praying for is that we're going to take a step back and we're going to go back to our roots again. And we're going to get tied back into where we need to anchor something. And we're going to go to a document in our New Testaments. And it may be confusing to you if you're fairly new to the Bible. that You'll hear us refer to it as the books of the Bible. And that's a little confusing because they're not really books in there. That's how we call it. But your Bible is made up of multiple documents. They were not all written at the same time. Not all written by the same person, in fact, written over generations difference, and there's different kinds of literature in there. If you've heard of the word gospel, gospel is more of an autobiography, not an autobiography, but a biography, an account of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then after the gospels, you get into a book called Acts, and that's another history. And then you start this, what's called the epistles, and that's just a fancy word for the letters. And so these are letters that, that we have, and this is a particular letter that was written by a particular person in a particular time and a place for a particular reason. And we're going to go back and explore that. Because in this letter, who the author is Paul, and Paul wrote most of our New Testament, but he writes this letter and he is going to instruct a church that there's some problems on the inside. On the outside, it looks fine. But on the inside, there's some things that they need to address and they need to take care of. And he's going to apply a very certain kind of medicine to the problem. And that's what we're going to explore. And so let me, if you have your Bibles or if you have the Scripture journals... This is going to be really simple, especially if you've got your scripture journals. You open to the very first page. And while you're doing that, I hope you have something to write with. Because what I believe is going on in Corinthians, in all of our New Testament, is going to be so applicable to where we are today that you're thinking I'm cheating. Okay? Because I've got a thesis statement that I want to share with you that's going to undergird everything that we do throughout this series. And here's the thesis statement. 
I believe the 21st century dynamics greater resemble the first century dynamics more than any century in between. Okay. Absorb that just for a second. I believe that what we are currently living in right now with all of our cultural dynamics at play greater resemble the cultural dynamics of the first century when the New Testament was written than any century that came in between. So that means that for us, I believe these documents that we have, because they're written in the very same kind of soil that they're being grown up in, are going to speak with a fresh voice to us in a very powerful way. Now, I'm not suggesting that they're saying something new that they haven't said before. I am saying that we have a set of ears and perhaps a heart attitude now that we hear it in a new way. We're going to discover in this church in Corinth that they are a very successful, proud people. Let me tell you a little bit about church in Corinth. I put it up on a map in case you want to know. Here, here's, here's what this part of the world looks like to give you an idea. And Corinth sits on this little peninsula. I mean, excuse me, this little isthmus right there. Let me get my geography right. Sits on this little, in fact, we can zoom in and you'll see that it sits right there at a very narrow slice of land, the Corinthian isthmus. And it is about three and a half to four miles wide. And so that makes Corinth the home to not one, but two different ports. And in our world today, we would dig a canal. But what Corinth did and what they did for, for the, the merchants was ships would come into this one port and they would literally rig the ship up to be dragged across the land to the other port so they did not have to sail, sail around this landmass. And so it's a two-port trade city. It is incredibly significant, incredibly su successful, incredibly commercial, and with it comes all the things that come when you're at the crossroads of the world. And all that comes with the ports. And all that comes with the businesses that were there. And so there's all these conflicting ideologies. Does this start to sound familiar? There's all these conflicting philosophies. There's not one religion that's in, in control. There's all these competing religions. And everybody's got their story. Everybody's got their truth. Everybody's got their way that they see the world. It was a very multicultural group. And in this context, everybody had what I would call at least a pseudo-spirituality. We have that today. America is a very spiritually minded, it's just not necessarily a Judeo-Christian spirituality that's being defined. I mean, she hasn't been on for several years, but if you remember at the end of her her long and, and um, television career, Oprah Winfrey had a particular segment on her show that was called "Be True to Your Spirit," and she would talk about how do you be true? To, how do you find your truth? How do you find your spirit? How do you find your way in this world? So it's a very spiritual mindedness, just like in the first century that we have, but it's not necessarily a Christian 
mindedness. And they believed that they were living in a time of incredible technological advancement, incredible um, means to reach around the globe, a very um, imperialistic mindset that says we can go where we want to go. And it's all forward progress. And they'd become very fancy, very sophisticated in their way of thinking. Here's a picture of the, uh, the ancient city of Corinth. In the hill on the background, in this multicultural, multi-city where they pursued wealth and they pursued um, passions, was a temple to a goddess, Aphrodite. In fact, they discovered numerous temples throughout Corinth. One was to Apollos, a major area of worship for Apollos. Another one was a major area of worship for Aphrodite. A god of sexuality. And in fact, as we're going to discover, there was perhaps as many as a thousand temple prostitutes that were employed by the temple that would create these worship experiences using their body. This is the culture that Corinth sits in. And I'm going to suggest it's not too much unlike ours. We have our places in the world today. Do you, you have your place in the world where you, where you just know that's kind of bad news? I mean, still today, Las Vegas endorses the term, we're sin city. Well, that's Corinth. In fact, some scholars believe that to be say that, well, that's a Corinthian girl, was not a compliment. It was a real slander against that person. And so Paul goes to this city, and he'd just been to Athens, and he, quite frankly, didn't have a lot of success in Athens. But he's on his missionary journeys, and he goes to this city, and he begins to preach the gospel, and people begin to listen, and he has great effectiveness in the city. And out of this, out of his preaching, this, this message of Jesus Christ, a group of people start to form and they become a church. Now, we've got to put our minds right because it's not a church like we have with a building and lots of people here and an online stream. It would have probably been about 30 to 40 people total. And Paul spends 18 months there beginning this church and launching and teaching. And then he moves on because that's his mission. He's going to go and preach in other places. As he moves around, he goes to a place called Ephesus. And after about three years, he stayed in contact with Corinth because he loves them dearly. And he starts receiving word. They've got problems. On the outside, it looks good. But on the inside, these problems are starting to creep in. And so he begins to write them letters back. Now, it's a little confusing because in your Bible we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We actually believe that Paul wrote four different letters to the church in Corinth. He wrote a letter that's referenced in 1st Corinthians before it that we don't have. And then our 1st Corinthians is actually his second letter. And then in 2nd Corinthians he references another letter that became in between. So that would have been third. So what we actually have is probably number two and number four in our Bibles. But what he's trying to do is he's reaching back to them and he wants them to understand there's a certain way that you live because of who you are 
in Jesus. So let me show you that. Let's begin. I'll begin right where he begins. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes was an assistant. Perhaps he's the one that actually is writing down what Paul is dictating. Church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. You thought I made that up, didn't you? This is a church that's in the midst of a culture that's very hostile to this church. It doesn't share its values. It doesn't share its story. It doesn't share its way of looking at the world. And Paul reaches out to them and says, in the middle of all of that chaos, in the middle of all of that stress, all of that anxiety, he says, grace and peace to you. As we gather each and every week, we need to hear the words of Paul saying, this is what God invites us into, is this grace and this peace. Church so often gets a bad rap, and we do church in a way that gives it a bad rap so much. In our world today. That it becomes a place. And what you think preachers should be saying is. Guilt and sorrow to you. Guilt and depression to you. Shame and regret to you. And yet Paul looks at him and says. Grace and peace to you. This is how it defines you. Now Paul's not unaware. Of the problems that they're having though. And that's very critical. And just to show you some of that, what we're going to be tackling inside of this letter. And a lot of this stuff, I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. It's not politically correct. Paul does not write a politically correct letter. He writes a letter that says, here's how you live as a people of God. And in, throughout this entire letter, yes, Paul is always concerned with the person that you are. But he's more concerned with the people that we are, as we are his church, Jesus' church. Through part of this, if you want to, you can jot these down quickly. We're going to come through them throughout this series, but here's a couple of things that will hit. Paul is very much aware of, because of where they live and because of the, the philosophy that's around them, the values, that there's a sexual problem going on. And they're having to confront sexual immorality. And it plays itself out in some very strange ways inside the church. And Paul's got to address that. There's several other immoral practices going on. In fact, we're going to get to a list in just a little bit of all these other immoral practices that occurs in the world. But they've made their way into this group called the church. They were fighting and struggling with divisions among each other. See, I'm telling you. You're going to think I cheated because this is going to sound so relevant to our world today. They have, they have legal disputes that are going on. They're starting to sue one another inside. This is how bad it's getting inside the church. Questions about marriage. How do we do that? They have struggles with idolatry and what kind of food can you eat? Can you eat this food that was offered to an idol? And they're having these arguments and the debates over that. 
How do you practice spiritual gifts? And ultimately, they're not even sure about how the resurrection of Jesus is playing out. This is a messed up church. This is a church that when somebody says, man, can't we just be like the first century church? You don't want to be like this one. In fact, there's not really one in the Bible you want to be like. Because they all have problems. They're all messed up. And yet that's why it's so important to listen to what Paul says to them. Because he speaks on behalf of Jesus the one who died for the church. And he's going to make theology, which is what you think and know and understand about God, he's going to make it very practical for us. And he's going to respond to them in a way that says, here's how you live this out. So let me show you this real quick. Picking up in four. Here's what Paul says to this church that has all kinds of problems, okay? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless and in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, I, I hope you're using one of these journals. And if you're not, you write in your Bible. If you don't think you can write in your Bible, I give you permission to write in your Bible. Okay? I want you to go back this week and while you have a chance and you're studying on this on your own, I want you to circle every time in that short from one to nine, he says, and makes a reference to Jesus Christ. It's like eight times in that short span of Scripture. Paul is telling us, it's like he's consumed, he's obsessed with that. You know, ever been around somebody and you kind of get the idea that they start to like somebody else. You know, if you're like in student ministry, this would happen to me all the time. One of my students would come up and start talking to me, and suddenly they kept, it was a you know, sweet little junior girl, and she kept talking about this senior guy. You know, they weren't actually dating yet, but she kept, kept mentioning him over. And I'm like, I think you kind of like him. No, I don't. No, I think you do, because you've said his name 14 times in this conversation. That's what Paul's doing. He's obsessed with Jesus. And throughout this entire letter, what he's going to do is he's going to call us back to who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the power of his resurrection. And he's going to instruct these people on how to live as people that believe in the empty tomb. And he's going to answer all of their questions and concerns. All of their their dysfunction is going to be addressed through that. And I'm going to show you one more powerful thing that he does. He calls them saints. You see that? He said to those saints, the one called to be saints, the one that are sanctified, you can see it in different ways in different translations. 
But what he's using is those that are called to be holy. And he doesn't mean holy someday. He doesn't mean saint someday. He says that's who you are right now. He's given them a nickname in many ways. He says, this is your identity. Now remember, he is applying this label to a church that is messed up. And if we were to sit in one of their worship services and be aware of what's going on, we would be very uncomfortable there. And yet, even with all of their brokenness and all of their problems, he still calls them a church of God. Sanctified by Jesus. And sanctified just means set apart. It means you're a holy people. You're set apart for a purpose. You're called for a purpose. You know, this, this is like if you've ever been in somebody's house and, you know, the, the wife has a, has a she cave or the man has a man cave or however that works. There's this place where that's their dominion. That's their place to rule. He's saying you've been set apart like that. You've been tasked in a certain way. Even though you're messed up, you're set apart. And what I want to take away from that is is this. That even though we are far from a perfect church, we're far from a church that has it all right. In fact, if you wondered that when you walk in, maybe you're new with us or maybe you're watching online, you're thinking, everybody else here has it all together. I'm the one that's got it all messed up. Let me reveal the truth to you right now. This is a room full, this is an online audience full of messed up people, okay? You can just turn to whoever you came with and say, you're messed up. I know you're messed up. And how do you know? Any church that would have me as the preacher is pretty suspect to begin with, okay? We don't have it all together. And yet, like the Corinthian church... Paul would look at us and say, there's the church of God in all its glory. Now live like it. There's another list that I'll share with you. If you want to just take a quick jump back to chapter 6, verse 9. Paul gives us this list, and he's referencing the church. And this is some of the stuff that we're going to deal with as we go through this series. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at verse 11 and don't miss the punch of it. And such were some of you. I mean, he looks right at the church and says, I know this describes you. A um, Ray Stedman was a 20th century evangelist and his ministry is out in California and he is preaching on this very verse one Sunday and he says he tells a story that in a moment the the spirit came on him and he 
he had this urge when he came across it says, and such were some of you. He wants to make the point that this describes what the church is. And so he asks his large congregation, he says, if this describes anybody, if you've got this in your past, I'm going to invite you to stand up. Can you imagine how quiet it got? It says, if you've experienced any of these things or any of this defines you, I want, I want you to share in this moment. And slowly, one lady on the aisle stood. And then some more. And then some more. And he says, till about two-thirds of the church was standing. And what Ray, Ray Stedman says, I didn't know at the time, but I found out later that there was a young man that had come into the church that day. And he'd never been in a church before. This was his first Sunday to come into a Sunday morning worship service. But he had just recently been to a Billy Graham crusade and given his life to Jesus and decided that he needs to go find a church home. And he watched that unfold as person after person stood. And he thought, these are my kind of people. That's exactly the point. It's not that you're perfect. But look, what, look how Paul finishes this. Verse 11, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our Lord. That's who Jesus makes us to be, creates in us, and calls us to be. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I'm sure if I asked everybody to stand here that's experienced that list, we'd complete the list. Father, yet you still call us your church. So, Father, I pray that over the coming weeks that you would open this letter to us and not just let us have a study where we walk away with more knowledge but we're actually changed and transformed by it, by these words that were penned so long ago, and yet they're relevant today. So, Father, anybody that's here today or anybody that's online listening that thinks somehow this doesn't apply to them because they're too far gone or they're out of reach, or they've got some hidden sin in their life and they've tried to overcome, Father, and nothing's worked, that these are not messages for them somehow. And Father, help us hear from the one that went to the cross and walked out of the grave and sanctifies us, redeems us, and calls us his body, his church. So Father, I pray that you would begin the process today of breaking through whatever defenses anyone has up. Whatever, whatever um, arm's length we're trying to keep you at, Father, that you would come through and begin to change us and help us see the grace that's present. And the grace that not only saves, but transforms. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.